your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, can y'all hear me okay? All right, Luke chapter 1. Am I on good? Good? Okay. Luke chapter 1 is our scripture reading this morning, and that's where we're going to pick up, and then we'll be in a few different places in Luke chapter 1. Um, I was studying this week, and I, we're kind of going through this whole discipleship facet of what it means to be a member at the Pine Tree Church of Christ. Um, and we're talking about how we can make disciples. And we've already mentioned, you know, we have this discipleship training coming up, which again, here's a reminder to fill out the sheet, turn, tear it off, and turn it in, in the wooden boxes. Uh, but we have an opportunity, I think, as a church to approach disciple making a little differently. And hopefully, it'll be more effective. Um, I was studying and thinking about how this has played out in my life so far. I was thinking back to a time several years ago where we still had Sunday night church, and it wasn't very well attended, and there was not very many young people who would show up for Sunday night church. And one Sunday evening, a a group of younger people showed up, and these are the type of people that didn't grow up going to church, their parents didn't go to church, so they didn't really know how to dress or act or behave when they came to church. They came in on a Sunday night, they had drinks in their hands, Uh, They had their feet on the pew in front of them, and they were talking very loudly. And there was a gentleman who did grow up going to church and was used to certain behavior at church, and he came out to me in the foyer, and he was so fired up, and he said, you need to go get those kids, is what he called them, and get them out of there. They're being loud, they got drinks in their hands, and we started to have a conversation. I tried to calm them down. I was like, do you even know their names? Have you had a chance to meet them? And this went on for weeks. We were just excited that they were showing up. And then one night he called me because he, he couldn't sleep. He was so upset about it. Um, and he just said, do you think I'm being too judgmental? And I said, man, I just don't think you see their worth. Like, I don't think that you see what they're worth. And I think if you did, we would be having a different conversation. If you could see their worth the way that God sees them, I think we would be approaching this thing from a totally different perspective. And after that night, he didn't call me for a long time. I don't think it settled too well with him, but it started a conversation that we had for the next several years. What's somebody worth? We challenge you with who's your one, but what's one person worth? Over a century ago, a doctor, he wanted to discover how much a soul weighed. How much would one person's soul weigh if you put it on a scale? Well, that's impossible to measure. So he decided that he would try an experiment on seven tuberculosis patients. And he measured them right before they died. He he weighed them. And then after they died, he weighed them again. And then at the end of his experiment, he determined that he thinks a soul weighs 21 grams. But since then, we would look at that study and say, There's no way to possibly tell how much a soul actually weighs. But how much is a soul worth? If you were having a discussion with your neighbor, with a family, and you were to ask, how much is somebody worth? How much is a soul worth? You might look to Scripture and you might say, well, how does God view it compared to how we view it? How much a person is worth? My friends at Denver, Colorado, who work for dry bones and work with those who are marginalized and struggle with addictions and come from a rough environment, street kids, they pass out these coins to them and they try to remind them, you have unsurpassable worth. 
That's the phrase they use. You have unsurpassable worth. That's how much God loves you. That's what you're worth. We're going to be in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 1 through 4 this morning. This is what Neil read for us in our scripture reading, and this is our our opening section this morning. I want to read it again and kind of go back through a few things. So if you have your Bibles, I hope that you're following along. Starting in verse 1. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those from whom the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. So Luke tells him, this is the intro. We believe Luke writes this because in the first century or towards the end of the first century, Luke was given credit as the author of this book and nobody argued it. So we assume this is Luke. He's a doctor. He's a physician. Luke was a disciple of Paul. Luke also wrote the book of Acts to the same person. We believe he was guided by the Holy Spirit, and he wasn't just writing to Theophilus, but he was writing to a wider audience as well. But this is some of the things he says in this intro. In verse 3, he says, I decided to write everything down carefully. Remember, this is the first century, so when he's writing everything down, he's actually writing it down. He's not typing it. He's writing this out, which takes a long time, but he felt that this man named Theophilus was worth it. It was worth the time and the energy to write this thing out. He said he's going to write an orderly account. I mentioned last week we had this guy from the Hills Church in Fort Worth. His name is David Meyer. Uh, He came and spoke to our elders and our staff and some of our deacons a few weeks ago. Uh, He's been the driving force behind this who's your one strategy. And he did a lesson with us, and he mentioned Luke. And he mentioned how Luke said he's going to write an orderly account. And order is important. As we get to chapter 15 here in just a moment, we'll see how important order really is. So he said he's going to write everything down. He investigates it, and he writes an orderly account to some guy named Most Excellent Theophilus, which I think is a great name. There's, you study the New Testament, Old Testament, there's some great names in there. This guy's name is Theophilus, but he refers to him as most excellent Theophilus. How does Luke know him? We don't know. Luke was a physician. Maybe Luke was the family doctor for Theophilus. Why is he called most excellent Theophilus? You know, maybe he was a Roman governor or a local ruler of some sorts, but obviously being, having that title, most excellent, which that means he, he was somebody important. He has some position of rank. But notice Luke doesn't call him my brother in Christ, Theophilus. So he calls him by his official title, which may indicate that that Theophilus is not yet a follower of Jesus. And then in verse 4, he says he's writing so that you'll know the truth of the things of which you've been taught or been instructed. So obviously Theophilus has been taught something. We don't know what he was taught. There were many people going around teaching false gospels. So maybe he was taught something. And Luke is straightening it out. Maybe Luke's telling him, this is what the truth is. I've investigated it. I was with Paul on many different journeys. I've been with the apostles. I've interviewed Mary. And maybe he's just saying, here's the truth. In the 21st century America, we struggle with the outside world telling us you can't know what truth is. That's impossible. That's arrogant. And yet we say Jesus is 
truth. And Luke says, I'm writing you the truth. Somebody recently said that apologetics is the new evangelism in this century, in this culture, in the U.S. Apologetics is simply a defense of your faith. Uh, You can read books on apologetics, and some of the more popular ones are like The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel, or uh, Timothy Keller has written some books, The Reason for God. And it explains why we believe what we believe and why we believe there's a God, why we believe the Bible is reliable. And maybe that's a part of who your one is, is defending your faith and why you believe what you believe, because there's so much skepticism out there. So Luke is writing to Theophilus and saying, you can know the truth, and here's the truth. The fastest growing religion right now in the United States are the nuns. I think I've mentioned this before. And it's not nuns, N-U-N-S. It's nuns, as in if you were filling out an application and you were putting what your religious affiliation is, none. That's the fastest growing religion. No religion. And that's the world we live in. And maybe it's slower to get to us in the Bible Belt, but that's the culture in which we live. So I mentioned last week, we're, we're challenging you with who's your one. You don't have to decide that right now today. We're going through this for a month. We're going to offer this training on March 4th, but we want you to prayerfully consider who's somebody in your life that you maybe come across on a normal basis and you just haven't had the eyes to see it yet. So who's your one? And after we talked about this some last week and talking with different Connect Group leaders and some of the discussions that went on, there's several questions that I think people have. So I'm going to answer a few frequently asked questions now and then a few more next week. One of those is this. How is this different from just a traditional church outreach program? You know, I grew up in a church culture that if you wanted to have an evangelistic movement, what would you do? You'd have something called a gospel meeting, and you would invite an outside speaker, and they would come, and for me, it was usually half a week. Some of you, maybe, you sat through gospel meetings that were a whole week long. Anybody sit through one of those? You know, and, and the idea behind that is you would just invite friends or coworkers or neighbors to come to a gospel meeting and hear a speaker, bring the hammer, and then maybe that'll lead to something. You know, that's been an approach in the past, or maybe a traditional approach with, to go out and go door knocking. You know, there's different options that we've had, but this is different in the sense that we're asking you to pay attention to somebody in your life on a one-on-one level, somebody that maybe you already have conversations with, already have a relationship with, and this is going to be an organic relationship. It's not something where just right off the bat you say, hey, come to church, or hey, are you a Christian? You begin by having spiritual conversations that eventually through time will lead to a discipling relationship. So it's a little different than maybe the traditional approaches to evangelism. And another frequently asked question is, what if I don't know anyone who's not a Christian? Maybe some of you feel that way, and I'll admit, this is where it's challenging to me. Jessica and I, my wife, we were talking about this last night. It's challenging because we didn't grow up here. My job is to work for a church, so most people that I'm getting to know are people that are already Christians. I've known plenty of people in my life who are not following Christ, but it's challenging because I have to start thinking, okay, where are regular restaurants that we go to? Where's the gas station we go? Who are people that we see on a normal basis that maybe I just haven't noticed? 
maybe he's not following Christ. Some of us know those who are unchurched. And maybe it's somebody who grew up outside of the influence of a church. There's plenty of people like that. As the rise of the nuns of no religious affiliation continues to increase, we're going to see more and more people who grew up unchurched, like those young folks that showed up on a Sunday evening service that I told you about. They were unchurched. They didn't know how to behave or talk or act like in a church. But there are those who are de-churched. People who grew up in church and have since walked away. And maybe you might consider them lost. You know, maybe they would still verbally say that they have faith, but they've walked away from everything else. Maybe that's what it is, or maybe there's the churched unbeliever. There are people who grew up going to church or have had some sort of affiliation with church and can kind of hide under that, under that umbrella of church, and maybe shows up occasionally, but really has not made a commitment to follow Christ with their life. Or maybe you know somebody who's heard a distorted view of who Jesus is, of what the gospel is, or maybe they've just never heard the gospel at all. If you start asking God to reveal this to you and you start paying attention, you'll be surprised at what you see out there. Maybe there's people who grew up with some sort of church influence, but what they've been taught is all messed up and distorted. And there's a lot of defending of Jesus that we might need to do. Some people have just grew up in church and have had a terrible experience. And maybe it's okay to just acknowledge that they had a terrible experience and be a good listener for them. But what's the worth of one? What's the worth of one person, of one soul? How would God view them? And who's your one and are they worth it? When Luke writes to Theophilus, Luke has a one. If you were to ask Luke... Who's your one? When he wrote this, he would probably say, it's Theophilus. That was his one. Theophilus would probably be somebody who was unchurched and has heard a distorted view of the gospel. So Luke is taking the time to write out these stories of Jesus. But if you read through all of the gospel of Luke, he doesn't water it down. He gives him a raw and kind of untamed Jesus of Nazareth. A guy who reaches out to the poor, who preaches on behalf of the poor. A guy who reaches the Gentiles and the hurting and the broken. So Theophilus gets the real deal of who Jesus is. But if we build up to Luke chapter 15, and if you have your Bibles open, turn over to Luke 15. It's interesting because in Luke 15 we see God's heart for one. What one person is worth. So I wonder how Theophilus read this. Luke 15 begins with a description. Verse 1 and 2, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming to listen to Jesus. They're coming to listen to him. There's, some, there's a magnetism about Jesus. That these down and out people that have been rejected by the normal religious society are drawn to Jesus. So they're coming to him, but the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling, saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Back in August, I did a sermon series called Jesus is Coming to Dinner. And during those sermons, we looked at all the table fellowship times that Jesus had. And when you ate and you sat down at a table with someone in that culture, you identified with that person, you're associating with them. So Jesus, to sit down and eat with tax collectors and sinners, 
Well, he was crossing some barriers. And the religious people didn't like it, but in Jesus' perspective, they were worth it. Tax collectors and sinners were worth eating with because they were worth reaching. And then the rest of chapter 15, this is one of the more well-known chapters in the Bible. So you probably know that there's three parables, starting in verse 3 with the parable of the lost sheep. Jesus tells three parables, and pay attention, we'll paraphrase some of this and read some of it. But you notice it has to do with something that's lost, and each time Jesus increases the percentage of that which is lost. And he starts with this parable of a shepherd and a sheep. The shepherd has 99 sheep. He loses one. In verse 4, Jesus said, Will you not leave the other 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he found it, he lays it on his shoulder and he rejoices. And then he comes home, he calls his friends and his neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, I found my sheep that was lost. Just so, I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So there's just one sheep that's lost, but the shepherd goes after that one sheep. It kind of paints a picture for us. Jesus is showing why it's so important for him to reach out to tax collectors and sinners because they're lost sheep. Okay, And he's going to go after them. One out of 100, what percentage is that? Anybody with me? One. Jack, I see you're a math teacher. One percent. I'm going to look to you for confirmation on these. There's just one percent, but he still thinks it's worth it to go find that one lost sheep. As I was studying for this, I came across a story. Uh, Tony knew who this guy was. I didn't know who he was before I read this story. Anybody recognize this picture? It's a guy, I pronounce it Yo-Yo Ma, but Tony pronounced it Yo-Yo Ma or something like that. But I'm going to call him Yo-Yo Ma. That's his name. Okay, he's a famous musician, and almost two decades ago, the Chicago Tribune did a story on him. He had a concert one night in New York City at Carnegie Hall, and it went on to late in the night. He went and got his hotel, got a few hours of sleep, got up the next morning, and called a cab to take him across Manhattan for his next show. So he had his cello, puts it in the trunk of the uh, tax, of the, whatever the guy's name is, the cab driver, maybe he's like a tax collector, and he puts it in the trunk of his cab, and then takes a ride across Manhattan, gets out, pays the cab driver, remember he's tired, and then he goes into the venue, and they start getting set up for the concert that night, and then he realizes, I don't have my cello with me. He left it in the trunk of the cab driver, so he spent the rest of the day frantically searching all over New York City for this one cello. And he wasn't alone. He had a lot of people searching for him, and they found it at the end of the day in a parking garage in Queens, New York. So you may be thinking, you're probably rich. You have a concert that night. Why not just go buy another one? You're in New York City. Surely you can find one. Well, the reason that one cello was so important to him It was handcrafted in the 18th century in Vienna, and it was valued at $2.5 million. My first thought was that cab driver who was driving around all day was something that valuable and had no clue. But it was worth the search because they knew the value of what they were searching for. And in Luke 15, Jesus paints this picture of just one sheep. And he knows the value of that one sheep. It's worth it. It's worth the search of the lost sheep. 
And then he tells another parable in verse 8, verse 8 through 10. There's a woman. She has ten coins. She loses one coin, so she lights a lamp. She sweeps the whole house clean until she finds that one coin. Why it was so important, we don't know. Maybe it was her life savings. Maybe she was saving up a dowry. We don't know what it was. But this woman has one coin that she's searching for. Okay? And then she has a party. She invites her friends and her neighbors in verse 9, Come and rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. And then Jesus says, Just so I tell you there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So throughout these parables, Jesus shows us that not only is there a celebration going on on earth, but there's a celebration going on in heaven. And when we don't celebrate, we're not matching up with what's going on in heaven. So now we had one sheep that was lost out of 100. Now we have one coin that's lost out of 10. So what percentage is that? Jack, 10%. All right, just checking my math. So we go from 1% to now 10%. So he's increasing the percentage. And then we get to this last parable in chapter 15, the parable of the lost son. A lengthier parable where there's a younger son and an older son, and then there's the father. And the younger son comes up to the father, and he says, Give me my share of the inheritance, which is the equivalent of saying, Dad, I wish you were dead. Because when you die, I get my inheritance, so just go ahead and give it to me anyways. Very disrespectful. But for whatever reason, the dad gives it to him. And you know the story, the younger son goes out, he squanders all of his wealth, he's immature, he doesn't know what to do with it, he blows through the money quickly, and then in verse 16, he winds up eating with and living with the pigs. And if you know anything about Judaism, that's a new low. You can't really get lower than that. So he makes a decision. I'm going to go back to my dad. I'm going to offer him this apology And his workers live better than this, so maybe I can be a hired hand or a servant for my own dad. And then he's walking down the road, right? And he has this apology ready, and then his dad sees him, and what does his father do? He comes running towards him. He throws his arms around him, and he rejoices that his lost son has come home. He doesn't even give his son an opportunity to offer his apology, does he? Any dignified senior in that culture would not run, and they would not be so forgiving. That son deserved to be beaten and maybe never forgiven and never accepted home, but instead the father says, kill the fatted calf. We're going to have a time to rejoice and to celebrate. So something that was lost, so there's two sons, one son is lost, so what percentage is that? 50%, so we go from 1 to 10 to now 50. The lost son has come home. There's more celebrating and rejoicing, but that's not the end of the story. Then you have the older son who stood outside and didn't go in. He was upset. Maybe he's thinking that calf that was killed for the celebration, that's part of my inheritance. So maybe he's feeling the sting of that, but he doesn't want to accept his younger brother back. In verse 30, the older son says, When this son of yours came back, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him? Then the father said, Son, you were always with me, 
and all that, I, all that is mine is yours. But I, we had to celebrate and rejoice because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and he's been found. So in this story, we look at it and we say, well, there's 50% here. One out of two were lost. But maybe you can make the argument that there's 100% lost. Because the older son, although he's there, in his heart he seems to be lost. Something is missing that he's not willing to accept his younger brother back. Um, there's, in Iceland, there's these tours that take place. You can take a bus tour, and they'll take you all over and show you these volcanoes and the canyons, and it's a beautiful tour, and they'll make stops along the way, and you can use the restroom, get something to eat, take pictures. And this one tour guide took a stop for a little while, and when it was time to get back on the bus and continue the tour, He was missing one lady from the trip. He was counting everybody as they came in. He knew them by their faces, and one lady didn't show back up. So that bus was not going to pull back out until they found where she was, and they spent the next 12 hours searching for her. Police and rescue crews had come in. Everybody that was on the bus was out searching for her. 12 hours later, she was found because she found herself. She looked at a picture of the person that was lost and realized they were looking for her. She was a part of the search party. When she had stopped, she went in, changed clothes, put on some makeup, and when she got back on the bus, the tour guide didn't recognize her. So then she had to turn herself in. She was lost the whole time. She just didn't know it. I feel like that's kind of like the older son. He's there. There's a search party going on. But maybe he's a part of those who are lost, and he just doesn't know it. He doesn't see the worth of one. What's the worth of one person? Why is Jesus reaching out to tax collectors and sinners? Because he belongs to a father who searches just for one. The worth of one. And we're not going to read Luke 19, but I'll tell you about it. Jesus goes to the home to eat with another tax collector. This time it's the chief tax collector, Zacchaeus. And out of all the people, Jesus says, I'm coming to your house to eat today. And again, the religious leaders are outside mumbling and grumbling because of this, but inside the house, Zacchaeus has changed his life. He repents. He says, everything that I have, I'm going to start repaying people and giving my money to the poor. And then in verse 9 of Luke 19, Jesus says, today salvation has come to this house. And then in verse 10, Jesus very plainly says, kind of like a mission statement, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That's why he was in the home of Zacchaeus. That's why when you find Jesus, most of the time he's out in the margins, because he came to seek and save that which was lost. What's the worth of one person? Who's your one, and what are they worth? I had a friend several years ago who started attending our church, and he actually approached me and wanted to do a weekly Bible study. There were other people who were influencing his life, 
It wasn't just me, but eventually he made the decision that he wanted to be baptized into Christ. He gave his life up for Christ, and we celebrated that, but he wanted to continue our weekly Bible study. So every week he would come into my office before he went to work, we would study and we would pray. And from the time that he became a baptized disciple of Jesus until the time he moved away, every week his prayer request was to pray for his lost brother. He had a brother that had an addiction and that had left and nobody knew where he was. And not only did he want his brother to sober up, he wanted his brother to follow Jesus also. So every week we prayed for his lost brother. We had a guy who was lost and then he was found. And so then he joined with praying and searching for those who were lost and he had a one. And he wasn't going to stop searching until his brother was found. When you're lost and you found, you join the shepherd in looking for those who are lost. I don't know who that is in your life. Maybe it's somebody who's unchurched, de-churched, churched unbeliever, somebody who's heard a distorted view, somebody who's never heard the gospel. But all people are of unsurpassable worth in God's eyes. So we join God in this mission to make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. And I hope that you're prayerfully considering this. This morning we're going to sing a few more songs. It says it in the, in the bulletin, and I'm going to repeat it like I do every week. We have six shepherds in this church that would love to pray with you and meet with you. Or I would love to pray with you and meet with you. We have an opportunity to respond to an invitation to come up front, to go to the back, to find a shepherd. If you need to respond today, take the opportunity to do it. Let's stand up and let's continue to sing.